This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You will have seen by our papers the delirium into which our citizens are thrown by a visit from General Lafayette. The éclat of this visit has almost merged the presidential question, on which nothing scarcely is said in our papers. That question will lie, ultimately, between Crawford and Adams. But the vote of the people, at the same time, is so distracted by subordinate candidates that possibly they may make no election and let it go to the House of Representatives. There it is thought that Crawford's chance will be best. Thomas Jefferson 13 October, 1824. It is with the utmost diffidence that I have concluded to intrude on your time a communication on the subject of the presidential election. My principal motive in writing was merely to say that the public meeting, under the authority of which the address was made both in point of numbers and weight of character, has never been exceeded by any, which in my knowledge and the experience of more than thirty years ever assembled on a political subject in this state. Lucius Horatio Stockton, 11 January, 1825. They held a meeting last night at the Orleans Theater, respectable in numbers and enthusiastic. Old Jacob Barker was the principal speaker and expressed his earnest disapproval of Mr. Lincoln. He then spoke highly and at some length of Mr. Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury and although disagreeing with him politically, expressed an earnest desire on account of his great and well-known ability that he might be the next president. George S. Dennison, 19 February, 1864. I knew McClellan tolerably well. With a very great regard for him, and with a very high opinion of his general abilities and of his patriotism, I find great difficulty in convincing myself of my duty to give him my vote. Personally, I regard him as far preferable to Lincoln, but he is surrounded by bad company. It is hard to be compelled to choose between him and Lincoln. The one I like, for the other I have no respect and no confidence. Hamilton Fish, 21st of September, 1864. When there was any shadow of a hope that a man of a more dedicated anti-slavery conviction and policy could be elected, I was not for Mr. Lincoln. Frederick Douglass, 15 October, 1864. Lincoln's election would be a disaster. But McClellan's a damnation. Charles Sumner, 1864. In the historical present, even in the best of times, we have a tendency to believe that our time and our circumstances are completely unique, and in some cases, they truly are. For the next two episodes of the special series, I'd like to delve into the annals of presidential election history and examine four elections that were remarkable in their own ways, be it due to the candidates running or the circumstances of the time or how the election was carried out. For whatever the reason, I argue that these four elections are worthy of being deemed unprecedented. And I'm glad to have you on this journey, dear listener. I welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. I'd like to start by sending special thanks to all the folks who provided intro quotes for this episode 
and introducing you to each one. Getting us started with the Jefferson quote was Logan Rogers, who hosts From Boomers to Millennials. His podcast starts in the year 1946 and covers one year in each episode leading up to the present day. Each episode is full of insight about modern American history, so be sure to give it a listen. I had the pleasure of getting to know Rosie Parent recently and have been working to get caught up on episodes of her podcast, History, eh? Each episode, Rosie speaks to a guest about a topic from the annals of history. Topics range from Greek and Roman sexuality to enlistment during World War I to privacy in 18th century London. It's always a surprise to see where in history the next episode will go, but you can be assured of picking up some great information from an engaged conversation on History A. And who knows, there might be an episode about a U.S. president coming up at some point in the future. Next up, Alex Hasty is the host of Ohio v. The World, a podcast which looks at the various figures and events that make up the history of the Buckeye State. He's got a new series coming out soon, which will feature the various Ohioans who became President of the United States. Be sure to check it out, especially as you might hear a familiar voice on one of the episodes of the series. Speaking of voices, giving voice to Hamilton Fish was Chris Stewart, host of the History of China podcast. Chinese history spans back millennia, and with each episode, Chris examines the various individuals and events of one of the world's oldest civilizations and guides his audience through the various dynasties and periods that led up to modern-day China. His dedication to this monumental task is an inspiration to all podcasters, and I can't recommend enough that you give it a listen. The final short quotes were voiced by myself and my husband Alex. Alex actually had double duty with this episode, as he also helped with the audio editing. As always, in all the many ways that he supports my efforts with this podcast and walks with me through life, I can't thank him enough. The aim of this special series has been to bring people together to appreciate a shared history and to learn and grow together. I always encourage everyone to seek out knowledge, but that journey is not always an easy one. With the advent of the internet and information at your fingertips, it has become easier to obtain information, but the onus is still on the information seeker to discern whether the source is reliable or not. That's where verifying through multiple sources comes in and being aware of any intended or unintended bias on the part of the source. Bias doesn't necessarily mean it isn't true, as we all have a bias, but it does mean you may not be seeing the whole truth when you just engage with one source for your information. That's why I consult with multiple sources for this podcast, to ensure that the information that I provide is as accurate as it can be. Also, I think it's important to note that the divisive nature of politics is nothing new, as we've already seen and will continue to explore in this podcast. Just because it's been done before, though, doesn't mean that you have to do the same. Though we can never be perfect, we can strive to be good and just and kind to one another. Working towards that ideal has always been enough, and it will be again, so long as we get on to it. With that said, let's turn our attention to the history of U.S. presidential politics. Naturally, when one thinks of unprecedented presidential elections, 1800 rises to the top of the list. As the Electoral College at that point did not designate a vote for president from a vote for vice president, running mates Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr ended up tied, and the election was thrown into the House of Representatives to decide who would ultimately become president to succeed the incumbent John Adams. Listeners to the regular narrative know how that turned out, and it is to episodes 2.23 and 2.24 that I would refer you if you haven't listened to those already. For this episode, however, 
I'd like to skip ahead in our narrative to the year 1824, where Adams' son, John Quincy, was one of the contenders in that year's presidential contest. Just the circumstances alone make 1824 unique. The nation was still recovering from the Panic of 1819, the first major economic downturn since the ratification of the Constitution, as well as the sectional turmoil of the Missouri Crisis. Meanwhile, the last vestiges of party opposition in the Federalist Party had all but collapsed, with many Federalists drifting over to the Democratic-Republican Party. And President James Monroe had won re-election in 1820, quote, by default, in a general atmosphere of indifference. Even in the wake of the 1820 election season, the talk was more about the next contest in 1824 and who out of the expected field of candidates would run and succeed Monroe. The names being bandied about were Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford, Secretary of War John C. Calhoun, Speaker of the House Henry Clay, and General Andrew Jackson. It's hard to imagine two more different presidential elections than those of 1820 and 1824, and the fact that they come one right after the other is fascinating. Possibly it could have been no other way. While Monroe was able to squeak through without any strong opposition, there were rumblings of discontent in many quarters. As we talked about in the first episode of this special series, Monroe had barely won his initial nomination in the Congressional Caucus against Crawford in 1816, and there had been many mutterings against the caucus system since then. As Robert Remini described in the second volume of his three-volume biography of Andrew Jackson, quote, While a Congressional Caucus was not unusual, it had been utilized for decades, at least in the past, a political contest between two parties had ensued. Now, there was only one party. That fact rendered a Congressional Caucus totally improper and dangerous. It negated the idea of free elections. For congressmen, rather than the American people, to decide the presidential question was a gross violation of the constitutional system. And for congressmen to insist that a caucus be held to nominate the Republican candidate served as one more indication of the prevailing corruption in Washington. As we've seen in modern contests, as the runner-up in the last contest for the party nomination, Crawford was the favorite candidate of the Congressional Caucus and of those dubbed Old Republicans, the more traditional quote-unquote Jeffersonian Republicans. He was clearly the candidate of the Washington Insiders, but that did not mean that there were not others in Washington circles who were eager for their opportunity. John Quincy Adams had been known by folks in government circles since he was a teenager and had been in government service for nearly that long. Adams had risen up from serving as secretary for a diplomat to Russia at the age of 14 to serve in diplomatic posts in his own right, then in the U.S. Senate, before being asked by President Monroe to join his cabinet as secretary of state. Adams had gained a large feather in his cap nearly a decade prior by helping negotiate the Treaty of Ghent, which had ended the War of 1812. But he was not alone among the aspirants in 1824 to claim that particular distinction. Speaker of the House Henry Clay had also been a member of the American delegation that negotiated an end to the War of 1812. And unlike Adams, Clay had much more practice in wielding political influence in Washington. To give you some idea as to his abilities, to date, Clay is the only person to ever be elected as Speaker of the House on his first day as a member of the House. He reshaped the office of Speaker during his tenure. Those of you who have listened to our main narrative may have noticed that we haven't really mentioned much about the Speaker of the House in our journey through now three presidencies. That's because, prior to Henry Clay, 
the Speaker was not really that much of a presence on the scene. As described by historian Robert Remini, quote, Since the founding of the Republic under the Constitution, no Speaker had realized the full potential of the office. No one had used it to move and shape national affairs in the direction that he, the Speaker, determined. That is, in Chill Henry Clay. Clay was more than willing to, quote, provide strong but domineering leadership, improved even in his first day to bring all of his oratorical and stagecraft skills to work, establishing his authority. Despite Clay's influence, there were other factors to consider in terms of a successful presidential run. If political proximity to the incumbent was the deciding factor, then John C. Calhoun might just stand a chance. But since he bowed out of the contest prior to the election, we'll postpone our discussion of Calhoun to another day. In juxtaposition to Calhoun's close proximity, one of the leading candidates in the contest promoted his political independence from the establishment as a strength. Andrew Jackson was the outsider, but he also was a military hero due to his leadership in the Battle of New Orleans. And, according to Remini, his candidacy benefited from the nationwide tour of the now-aged Marquis de Lafayette through the United States in 1824. Lafayette's tour, quote, reminded the country of its revolutionary greatness and also reawakened Americans to the fact that revolutionary heroes still lived and deserved their reverence and gratitude. General Andrew Jackson was one of those heroes. As a boy, he participated in that noble enterprise and was scarred on the hand and head for his efforts. The facts of Old Hickory's early life were again reprinted in the newspapers at the time, and John Eden brought out a new and updated edition of his biography. Though Crawford would win the Congressional Caucus as expected, the other candidates were put forward as nominees by members of state legislatures. Tennessee started the trend when, on July 20, 1822, its state legislature, during a special session, announced its endorsement of Jackson as president. Clay got his first nomination a few months later, when Missouri nominated him on November 7, 1822. Adams's hat was thrown into the ring when he was nominated by a caucus from the Maine state legislature on January 16, 1823. Other states would get into the mix by either offering their endorsement or, in the case of Ohio, deciding, quote, that it was inexpedient to go into any nomination. But it was clear as 1824 neared that there would be four main candidates in the race. One of them, however, would suffer a setback well before any votes were cast. In September 1823, Crawford, due to the treatment administered for another medical condition, suffered a massive stroke. As described by historian Harry Ammond, quote, for months he, i.e. Crawford, remained speechless, nearly blind, and immobile. The seriousness of his condition was carefully concealed from the public. But as he was incapable of running the Treasury Department for nearly a year, political insiders knew that something was amiss. Even with this development, he had still won the Congressional Caucus, but Crawford's support continued to dwindle through the course of 1824. When it came to the election, out of 24 states voting, six states still had their electors chosen by their respective state legislature, but of the remainder that had electors chosen by popular vote, Jackson was the favorite, winning nearly 153,000 votes. John Quincy Adams came in second with just over 114,000 votes, while Clay was third in the popular vote with 47,000, and Crawford followed close behind with just under 47,000. When it came to the electoral vote, 
Jackson was again in the lead with 99 votes, and John Quincy Adams was second with 84 votes. Thanks to Crawford winning 16 additional electoral votes from states that had no popular vote for president, he came in third in that count with 41 votes to the 37 electoral votes cast for Clay. As none of the candidates won a majority of the electoral votes, under the provisions set forward by the 12th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the three highest vote-getters were put forward to the U.S. House of Representatives to choose the next president. This meant that Clay was out of the contest. But as he was still Speaker of the House, and a quite influential one at that, he still had a role to play. However, it's a role that we'll have to explore at a later time. I think, between the number of candidates in the race, the realignment in the party structure, and the shift in the process of choosing presidential candidates, the case has been made that 1824 was an election unique in American history to that point. If we fast forward 40 years, we can find another election that was unprecedented, though in quite different ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, most would think of the election of 1860 as being more exceptional than the election of 1864, but if you will give me some time to explain, I'd like to justify my case. The election of 1860 was certainly unusual. At that point, the Republican Party was still relatively new, having just been brought into being in 1854. I won't go into details, but suffice it to say that Abraham Lincoln's race for the party nomination was not an easy one. But as we all know, he ultimately came out on top to face whatever opponents there may be in the general election. Little did he know just how many opponents he would face. The Democratic Party split along sectional lines, with Northern Democrats nominating Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois, Lincoln's opponent in that famous series of debates a few years prior. Southern Democrats left the convention and nominated Vice President John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky. Meanwhile, a new party appeared on the scenes, which was, quote, composed of old-line Whigs and remnant know-nothings, who nominated former Secretary of War, former Senator, and former Speaker of the House, John Bell of Tennessee. In a first with four major candidates in the running, Lincoln won the 1860 presidential election outright. There was no turning to the House of Representatives to settle things. Really, the most unprecedented item of note about that election was in the aftermath, when South Carolina started a train of southern states seceding from the Union in response to Lincoln's victory and their fears of what a Lincoln presidency would mean for the preservation of the status quo of the southern economy, which was dependent on the forced labor of enslaved individuals. By the time of the election of 1864, the nation had been engaged in civil war for over three and a half years. The war had been devastating and brutal on many folks and Lincoln had faced heavy criticism over the years for his prosecution of the conflict, so much so that his re-election was not guaranteed. Indeed, by all accounts, the national morale was at a severe low point in the first few months of 1864. The excitement over the victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg in July 1863 had long since faded, replaced instead by a seeming stalemate in 1864. Part of the reason for the stall on the side of the Union 
was that many three-year enlistments expired that year, so new recruits were needed to build back up the numbers. And Lincoln had already taken steps to call up first an additional 500,000 men, then another 200,000 men in a second draft order. Meanwhile, a new commander had been put in charge of all Union forces in March, General Ulysses S. Grant. Upon taking command, Grant intended to implement an overarching military strategy for the United States, something that had not been done to date in the conflict. That, however, would take time, and since Grant's strategy relied on utilizing the greatest resource of the North, namely its larger population, to wear the South down, it was unclear as to how long and how bloody the conflict would ultimately end up being. If that wasn't bad enough, Lincoln faced dissension in the ranks. Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase had been troublesome for quite some time. Chase, like many of the men Lincoln had brought into his cabinet, had been one of his opponents in seeking the Republican nomination for president in 1860. But unlike the others, the years of working with Lincoln had not dispelled his ambitions. Lincoln was well aware of Chase's ambitions and his attempts while he was in the cabinet to put himself in a politically advantageous position. But Lincoln also recognized the benefits of keeping Chase close, especially as he was doing an admirable job at managing the Treasury during the crisis and had proved himself to be an invaluable asset to the cabinet in the early days of the war. Meanwhile, the Republican Party had suffered losses at the polls in the midterm elections. While retaining an overall majority, What victories Lincoln and his supporters were able to eke out came at a high cost, both monetarily in terms of contributions to funds to help influence the elections, and politically, as Lincoln had to enlist the support of anyone he could, including Salmon Chase, in the effort. Chase's successful campaign push in Ohio positioned him not only into the spotlight, but made some party insiders wonder if he, rather than Lincoln, might be the best choice to put forward in 1864. Ohio was a swing state, after all, and they credited Chase's efforts on the campaign trail for ousting one of the principal leaders of the opposition Democrats in Congress, Representative Clement Vallandingham. Chase himself had done all that he could to help his cause by spending his evenings writing, quote, hundreds of letters to local officials, congressional leaders, generals, and journalists, citing the failures of the Lincoln administration. Chase was not above using the office to which Lincoln had appointed him to further his ambitions. One of his colleagues, Attorney General Edward Bates, noted that Chase, quote, has been filling all the offices in his own vast patronage in the Treasury Department with extreme partisans and contrives to fill many other vacancies properly belonging to other departments. In early 1864, it looked like his efforts were paying off. In early January, friends of Chase paid the publisher of the American Exchange and Review magazine thousands of dollars for him to, quote, print a flattering biographical sketch of the Treasury Secretary. Meanwhile, a Chase for President committee was started up with Senator Samuel Pomeroy of Kansas and railroad agent James Winchell heading up the effort, and with Chase's son-in-law contributing the largest share of the campaign funds for the committee. The committee in February issued a circular to 100 leading Republicans, which was soon leaked to the press, in which they attacked Lincoln and put forward Chase as the only man who could, quote, vindicate the honor of the Republic. Worse, the circular even claimed that, quote, Mr. Chase was fully informed of this proposed action and approved it fully. 
Though Chase, of course, denied any prior knowledge or involvement with issuing the circular, the damage was already done, and this blatant grab for power backfired, turning people away from supporting Chase. The secretary officially withdrew his name from the contest in March, but the final coup de grace for Chase came a few months later. In early June, the Republican National Convention began in Baltimore. Though supposedly not in the race, there were still some murmurings that there might be a last-minute push for Chase. But Lincoln and his supporters had determined to quash all last vestiges of dissension in the ranks. Some Republicans had attempted at the end of May to break off and hold their own convention to put forward as a third-party challenger John Fremont, the Republican nominee for president in 1856. However, this breakaway convention, which had been expected to draw thousands, only had about 400 attendees, and Fremont had little impact in the general election, especially as he withdrew his candidacy on September 22nd. By the time of the official Republican convention, it was clear that Lincoln was in control of what had been redubbed the National Union Convention. Not only did Lincoln become the first incumbent president in over 20 years to receive his party's nomination for a second term on the first ballot, but in keeping with the theme of national union, loyal Southern Democrat Andrew Johnson of Tennessee was nominated as vice president thanks to the efforts of key Lincoln allies, though Lincoln himself did not issue a public endorsement of any candidate. A few weeks later, in the last week of June, Secretary Chase overplayed his hand in a political back-and-forth with Lincoln over an appointment to the post of Assistant Treasurer of New York, on which they did not see eye-to-eye. When Chase offered up his resignation, not the first time he had played that card, mind you, Lincoln called him on his bluff and accepted the resignation. While some of his advisors feared that this move would imperil Lincoln's political standing in the party, it actually signaled a change in Lincoln's approach. He had often handled affairs with kid gloves up to that point, but his dismissal of Chase meant that the gloves were off and he was ready to throw himself into the arena, come what may. Democrats had been split in 1860 between North and South, but even with the cession of the Southern states, the remaining party members still struggled to develop one unified message. Some Democrats had thrown their active support to Lincoln, while others, while disagreeing with Lincoln's prosecution of the war, still favored the continuance of the war. The most vocal critics were dubbed Copperheads. Not only did they oppose Lincoln, but they favored negotiating peace with the Confederacy. In order to enhance their chances in the election in November, Democratic leadership opted to hold off until late August to hold their national convention in order to allow them as much time as possible to respond to recent military developments in adapting their platform and determining a campaign strategy. When they assembled in Chicago, the Democratic platform that was ultimately put forward was largely one reflecting the view of the Copperheads. It criticized Lincoln's use of martial law and his administration for violating state and civil rights. It also, quote, called for an immediate end to hostilities and a negotiated peace. But who would carry this banner forth into the election season? General George McClellan had early on in the war secured quick victories in western Virginia, while other commanders had suffered embarrassing losses. And thus, this 34-year-old found himself named as commander of the Army of the Potomac in July 1861, then, in November, was named as general-in-chief. 
Certainly, his background suggests that far better military knowledge than some of the political generals who had been given commissions. McClellan was a graduate of West Point and had delivered the valedictory address at his graduation. He was an acclaimed veteran of the Mexican-American War and, quote, had studied military methods in Europe. He was trained as an engineer and, prior to returning to service with the Civil War, had risen in only a few years' time from a post as chief engineer to become president of a railroad company. Though dubbed the Little Napoleon, improving his worth by quickly getting the ragtag forces that had been hastily assembled to combat the Confederacy up to speed, McClellan's Achilles heel soon showed itself. As historian Irving Stone wrote, quote, Having built the most powerful army of its times, he, i.e. McClellan, could not be persuaded to use it. Further, McClellan did everything he could to show his contempt for the commander-in-chief. When Lincoln and Secretary of State William Seward paid a call to McClellan's home in November 1861, they were informed that he was out, but decided to wait as the general was expected back soon. Upon McClellan's arrival, he was told of his visitors, but instead of greeting them, quote, ignored them and went upstairs. Lincoln and Seward waited another half hour until a servant finally deigned to inform them that the general had gone to bed. As we've seen, personal animosities didn't really bother Lincoln so long as the work was being done. But with McClellan, it wasn't. Time and again, McClellan held back from dealing a decisive blow to Confederate forces. Using the excuse that his dual roles as general-in-chief and commander of the Army of the Potomac would keep him from prosecuting the campaign on the ground in Virginia, Lincoln relieved McClellan as general-in-chief in March 1862. Even with this, though, there was no change to the general's failure to vigorously pursue the conflict. After McClellan's failure to push ahead and take the battle to Confederate forces after the Battle of Antietam, thus giving the enemy forces an opportunity to regroup, Lincoln relieved McClellan of command on November 7, 1862. After his departure from the Army, quote, McClellan had lived quietly in New Jersey and New York. This didn't mean, however, that he and his supporters weren't still planning. In the fall of 1863, McClellan launched a first volley into the political arena by giving his public endorsement to the Democratic candidate for governor of Pennsylvania. His ties prior to the war with pro-slavery Democrats and opposition to the policies of the Lincoln administration, in particular the Emancipation Proclamation, were known in political circles. And even prior to his ouster as commander of the Army of the Potomac, McClellan had issued a special order saying that, quote, The remedy for political errors, if they are committed, is to be found only in the action of the people at the polls. Thus, the Democratic Convention in Chicago in August 1864, by a near-unanimous vote on the first ballot, nominated McClellan as its choice for president. One would think, given all that has been said thus far, that McClellan was a prime choice for carrying the Copperhead banner. But there was a problem, as noted by both Stone and historian James McPherson. The Democratic platform, as it read, seemed to favor peace first and the Union second. McClellan was many things, not all of them good, but he was loyal to the ideal of the Union. When the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, McClellan had been approached by some officers who urged him, quote, to march the army on Washington to compel a reversal of the proclamation. 
McClellan refused, though he disagreed with the proclamation and likely would have been able to get a large amount of support in such a move because he knew that such an action would be the death knell of the United States as it stood. Thus, when McClellan read the platform and considered his nomination, though he accepted the nomination, in his letter of acceptance, as Stone notes, quote, McClellan repudiated the platform and with it, the Democratic Party. As McClellan stated in his letter, quote, the Union must be preserved at all hazards. I could not look into the face of my gallant comrades and tell them that he had abandoned that Union for which we have so often periled our lives. Now, one part of this story that I didn't know until I started doing this research is that McClellan had an opportunity to return to the Army rather than accept the nomination. Acting of his own accord, one of Lincoln's confidants, Francis P. Blair, had approached McClellan in July and told him that if he refused the Democratic nomination for president or said that he would not accept it, quote, he, i.e. Blair, was confident that McClellan would be appointed to a command befitting his rank. Indeed, when Lincoln and Grant met at Fort Monroe on July 31st, one of the items on their agenda to discuss was McClellan. Grant would Grant would Grant would Grant would recall later. Grant would recall Grant would recall later that when he took command as general in chief, he had intended to bring McClellan back into the army, and Lincoln seemed open to the idea, but only if McClellan was not running in the fall to take Lincoln's position. However, McClellan replied to Blair that quote, "It is my firm conviction." that no man should seek that high office, i.e. the presidency, and that no true man should refuse it if it is spontaneously conferred upon him. With his acceptance of the nomination, McClellan shut the door on his possibility to return to military life and instead embraced this call to political life offered by the Democratic Party. As was the custom of the time, the candidates themselves did very little actual campaigning in order to appear above the fray and not overly eager for election. But their lieutenants were hard at work, and the candidates had their behind-the-scenes roles to play. McClellan mostly demurred from meeting with political insiders and influencers, except as much as was absolutely necessary, and issued no public statements outlining his principles, preferring to stand on his record. He did make two public appearances during the general election, attending a Democratic Party rally in Newark, New Jersey in September, then watching, quote, a massive torchlight parade in New York from the balcony of the Fifth Avenue Hotel just before the election. While McClellan may have kept quiet, the Democratic Party machine was quite vocal. Democratic newspapers and speakers across the nation rallied against the Lincoln administration and its, quote unquote, tyranny. The administration was attacked for, quote, its subversion of the Constitution and individual liberties, and its revolutionary altering of the social order. Democratic campaigners actively appealed to still-lingering prejudices in the white voter population. A Democratic poster warned voters that if Lincoln and the quote-unquote Black Republican ticket was elected, quote, you will bring on Negro equality, more debt, harder times, and another draft. President Lincoln, meanwhile, had a war as well as a campaign to prosecute, but the two often conflated as he was under increasing pressure from within his ranks 
to seek a peaceful resolution to the Civil War. As the Democrats were getting set to convene in Chicago, the chairman of the Republican Party wrote to Lincoln that, quote, I'm in active correspondence with your staunchest friends in every state, and from them all I hear but one report. The tide is setting strongly against us. The populace was disappointed by, quote, the want of military success and the feeling that the Confederates would be willing to negotiate a peaceful settlement and reunion if the National Union Party would drop its demand from the party platform that slavery be abolished through a constitutional amendment. By that point, Lincoln had met with Frederick Douglass on August 19th to discuss the pressures he was under to rescind the promise of abolition. He shared with Douglas a letter to a war Democrat governor who had written to him urging him to reconsider. In his draft reply, Lincoln had written, quote, To me, it seems plain that saying reunion and abandonment of slavery would be considered, if offered by the Confederates, is not saying that nothing else or less would be considered. This ambivalent language, Douglas warned, quote, would be taken as a complete surrender of your anti-slavery policy and do you serious damage, and he strongly advised the president not to send the letter. The draft was filed away, never to be sent, and Lincoln would respond soon after when questioned about the idea that any equivocation on the abolition issue would cause the hundreds of thousands of African Americans in the army to abandon their post and, quote, we would be compelled to abandon the war in three weeks. However, Lincoln, shortly after his meeting with Douglas, drafted another letter, one which he sealed so as the actual text of the letter was not visible, and brought it into his meeting with his cabinet on August 23rd. The president asked each of his cabinet members to sign the paper without any of them actually seeing what the text of the memorandum was. When it was opened after the election, they learned that the memo to which they had affixed their signatures read as follows, quote, This morning... As for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. Then it will be my duty so to cooperate with the president-elect as to save the union between the election and the inauguration, as he will have secured his election on such ground that he cannot possibly save it afterwards. Without their knowledge, Lincoln had committed his administration to working with the incoming president as well as devoting all their remaining time and resources leading up to Inauguration Day to winning the war. Though pessimistic, the party leaders were not willing to accept their fears as a foregone conclusion. One of the most extraordinary features of the 1864 election was that a concerted effort was made to enable active-duty soldiers to vote. This was something unheard of in history to this point, and 19 states made provisions to allow soldiers to vote in the field. Naturally, one would think that McClellan, given his military background and his popularity in the ranks while in service, would have an advantage in the election among the Army ranks, but party insiders on both sides of the aisle knew different. Democrats in Illinois and Indiana worked to block legislation to provide for soldiers in the field to vote for just that reason, while Republicans did everything they could to push such legislation through. The problem that Democrats had with the soldiers was with the party platform, as it seemed to suggest that the war and all their efforts and sacrifices had been for naught. Not only would that be a hard pill to swallow in any circumstance, but events playing out as the election drew closer seemed to suggest that the war effort was finally about to pay off. 
The first silver lining came when Admiral David Farragut and his force took control of Mobile Bay in late August, eliminating yet another key port from the Confederacy's arsenal. However, this victory was soon eclipsed by a telegram from General William Tecumseh Sherman informing the government in Washington that, quote, Atlanta is ours and fairly won. Atlanta was a key junction in the Confederate Railroad Network, and its loss would further hamper their supply efforts and the sustainability of the war effort. The Atlanta victory in particular buoyed spirits in the North, and, especially coming so soon after the Democratic Convention in Chicago, was incorporated in campaign efforts. One Republican newspaper ran soon after with the headline, quote, Old Abe's reply to the Chicago Convention, Is the war a failure? As the election neared, it became clear that the soldier vote would be critical in certain states, and thus, as commander-in-chief, Lincoln did his part to help. As noted by historian James McPherson, quote, Military operations came to a halt in early November as thousands of soldiers from states without absentee balloting received furloughs to go home and vote. Accusations of wrongdoing came from both sides. Democrats in Indiana decried the furloughs as adding, whether fairly or not, quote, thousands of Republican votes. Meanwhile, a group of Democratic commissioners from New York made their way to the front lines to collect the votes of soldiers, but were soon, quote, arrested and convicted of stuffing ballot boxes with forged McClellan votes. One of those accused did confess to the crime. In this extraordinary election held in the midst of the bloodiest conflict to that point in American history, Lincoln won a resounding victory. He won 55.1% of the overall popular vote to McClellan's 44.9%, while in the Electoral College, he carried the votes of all the states but Delaware, Kentucky, and New Jersey, though there was also one elector from Nevada who decided not to cast his vote, though the state had gone for Lincoln. In terms of the soldier vote, in the 12 states in which their ballots were counted separately from the rest of the state's ballots, Lincoln won 78% of their votes. Even in the Army of the Potomac, which McClellan had commanded, the former general only carried 29% of the vote. Exploring the aftermath of this unprecedented election, however, we'll have to wait for another time, for that is outside of our scope for today, and our time together is drawing to a close. We'll discuss two other extraordinary presidential elections in the next special episode in this series, so I hope you'll join me next time. Until then, I'd like to thank Logan, Rosie, Alex Hasty, Chris, and my husband Alex again for providing the intro quotes for this episode. To learn more about each of the podcasts mentioned or see the sources used for this episode, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B, rry.com. There, you can also find past episodes of the special series, along with the regular narrative episodes. For those of you listening to this on or before April 30th, 2020, Podchaser, which is the self-described IMDBF podcast, is currently in the midst of its reviews for good benefit. For every podcast or podcast episode review left on their site through April 30th, they will donate 25 cents towards the Meals on Wheels COVID-19 response fund. All you have to do is go to podchaser.com, search for presidencies, as well as all of your favorite podcasts, and leave a review. It's that simple. Even better, 
there's an opportunity to double each donation if the podcaster responds to the review. Thus, I'm watching out for every review that comes my way and responding with my thanks. Honestly, even if you leave a negative review, I'll still respond with my thanks, as this isn't about me. It's about helping folks who rely on the great service that Meals on Wheels provides to seniors across the nation. Please take a moment to go to podchaser.com and search for presidencies. Or I've posted a direct link on the Source Notes page for this episode at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Thanks to all of you who have left reviews thus far. I greatly appreciate your supporting this worthy cause and for all the kind words that you've left in your reviews. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me through social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Thanks so much to all of you for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.